0: Father, we thank you for your word to us here. Help us to understand and help us to see Christ better through these words. Amen. One of my favourite pastimes is playing board games. I think we probably have a few uh, gamers uh, in the room, in the building, watching this morning. Uh, I won't bore you with technical details if you're not a fan. And and Dale Ralph Davis, who's a pastor, a writer, um, he's written some fantastic commentaries on some of the Old Testament narrative books of the Bible, including Judges. Um, And he uses the illustration of playing a board game uh, as he writes about Judges 3. And I think it's a helpful prism through which to see the events of this book. Because as we were considering with the children just now, we've already been told in the first two chapters how the game will pan out. And then in chapters 3 to 16, we see what the pattern looks like in practice with each new generation and with each new judge. So keep an eye out this morning uh, and as we go through this series for the twists and the turns to the suggested gameplay of chapter 2. And we're in uh, Judges 3 today And in Judges 3, we meet the first three judges. uh, Othniel in verses 7 to 11, Ehud in verses 12 to 30, and Shamgar in verse 31. And we'll try and um, sort of focus where the passage focuses. So we'll start with Othniel, we'll spend the bulk of our time with Ehud, and then we'll just touch down briefly at the end with Shamgar. Um, And we'll see this this, this board game played out for the first three times. We'll, uh, We'll learn the ropes with Othniel, We'll see the first full game with Ehud and then just finish with a very short and sweet game with Shamgar at the end. So first of all, learning the ropes with Othniel, verses 7 to 11. The eagle-eyed may remember that we first meet Othniel in chapter 1 of Judges, in verses 12 to 15. He takes Kiriath Sefer and he marries Caleb's daughter Aksa. Um, And then he appears again on the scene in chapter 3, verse 7, and immediately we see the pattern God prophesied in chapter 2 beginning to take place. Step 1, the Israelites turned away from God. Verse 7, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherah. We can look back at chapter 2, verse 11. To see that step predicted. Step two, God handed them over to their enemies. Verse eight, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel so that he sold them into the hands of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Aram Naharaim, to whom the Israelites were subject for eight years. God handed them over to their enemies, just like he said he would, in chapter two, verse 14. Step three, verse nine, they cried out to the Lord. Step four, God raised up for them a deliverer, Othniel, who saved them, just as God said he would do. In two, verse 16. And step five, the deliverer defeated their enemy, and verses 10 and 11, the land had peace for 40 years. Peace was won for a generation just as God said in chapter 2, verse 18. And in just five five verses, we're we're done and dusted. The pattern has been played through. The game is finished. Uh, And we might perhaps feel, having grabbed our popcorn, settled down on the sofas for some gore, some guts, some gags, we might feel that this first judge story is is a bit lacking. Well, Othniel's account, Dale Ralph Davis writes, It's a bit like when someone gets out a new board game. They talk you through, explain the rules, how it usually plays out, and then you have a go at playing it through together, but with an open hand, kind of half playing it and half them still explaining how it works. And that's kind of what we get with Othniel. It's it's a worked example, a paradigm account, a summary of how things were supposed to go. We're We're not really meant to kind of emotionally enter into and imagine the story. But we're not given enough detail to do that. But, even in this first game, we do still see some of the headlines of how these games are going to be played out. It's a bit like, you know, your mum is always going to go for the green pieces. Your dad is always going to try and store up money in the bank. And to help us see the the gameplay headlines in Othamiel's account... Let's look for a moment at what each of the different people in these five verses do. Let's look for the verbs. So Israel. Israel did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Forgot the Lord their God. And served the Baals and the Asherah. And then verse 8 became subject to King Cushan, Before finally in verse 9 crying out to the Lord. That's Israel. Othniel. Well, Othniel saved them, end of verse 9, and became Israel's judge and went to war, in verse 10, and overpowered King Cushan. A God? Well, God's anger burned against Israel, in verse 8, and he sold them into the hands of Cushan, verse 9, and then he raised up a deliverer and sent his spirit to come on that deliverer and then gave king Cushion to Othniel in verse 11. And finally, king Cushion. Well, king Cushion, nothing. Not a single active verb is attached to Cushan. The closest we get is some passive verbs. Israel were sold into his hands. They served him. He was then given into Othniel's hands. But there's not a single active verb for King concussion. What's the point? Well, who is the chief player in this game? Israel? Hardly. Othniel? Well, sort of. He, he, he kind of. he did the lowercase, you know, the size 9 font-saving. But but it was God who did the uppercase, the size seventy two saving. Cushion? No. He was like putty in God's hands. The chief player in this game is God. It is God who sold his people and gave them to their enemies. It is God who heard their cries. It is God who sent them and empowered by his spirit their rescuer. And it is God who gave their enemies into their hands and brought them peace. Who's the chief player here? It's God. The rest are just pawns. So this brief first judge story, this brief first game, it gives the paradigm, the pattern, that every single game, every single generation, every single judge, every single enemy is going to fall into. We learn the ropes with Othniel. But now it's time for the first full game with Ehud in verses 12 to 30. It's a longer story, so we'll split it up a little bit more. Uh, We'll look at it in terms of the the three key actors, and then we'll draw the themes together at the end as we see God's great deliverance. So the first key actor, a sinful people, verses 12 to 14 a sinful people. If we thought verse 7 was a bad start, it gets worse. Othniel dies, verse 11, and what happens? Straight away, verse 12, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Despite God's great salvation, just a generation earlier, Othniel's cremation has hardly finished and they fall back into sin and forget their God again. And we don't even get the details in verse 12 like we did in verse 7. It's as if the writer's saying, just look back at verse 7. It wasn't long ago. And note the repetition in verse 12. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and because they did this evil. And note too that God is the chief player. It wasn't Eglon's great might that vanquished Israel, but the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel, in verse 12. His people had become so sinful that, just like in verse 8, his anger burned against them. And like in verse 8, he sold them. Like you or I might try to sell an unwanted Christmas present on eBay. And we're back where we were just four verses ago, as if God's great salvation in verses 9 to 11 had never happened. And let's pause for a moment there and just allow ourselves to feel the weight of this lightning speed return to sin. And I think the question that we probably need to ask ourselves is... Is this meant to be a mirror? Are we to read this passage and think, as I often do when I come to passages like this, what fools, I wouldn't have done that. Or are we to read this passage and think, ah, that that's my heart too. Now of course, we're we're in a different place to them. We've been saved by God's grace. God the Father has breathed life into our spiritually dead souls. Christ has fully paid on the cross for all of the sins of all of his people for all of time and we have the spirit of God living in us as the church. We're in a very different place but sin is still a very real presence in our lives. It is not just hypothetical. It is not just what we once were. It is not just the occasional wrong thing we might say or do, sin has a very real presence in our lives, and if we let it, it runs rampant within us. It is possible for a Christian, R.C. Sproul once said, to be engaged in a very serious fall. I can't think of any sin other than blasphemy against the Holy Spirit that a truly converted Christian isn't capable of committing. He goes on to give David's adultery and conspiracy to murder, as an example. And Peter's vociferous denial of Christ in public. Sin has a very real presence in our lives. And the New Testament tells us to kill it. That's the verb we see in the New Testament. Not not hide it, play it down, ignore it, not even decrease it, but kill it. And yet so often we're too busy shining our outsides, uh, how other people see us, to ever really examine what's in our hearts. But Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 4, these things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. So perhaps the Lord is holding a mirror for us here. He certainly has been for me this week to help us see that sin has a very real presence in our lives and it does not belong there. But We don't just see God's sinful people in these opening verses. We also see God's. Verse 15 we see a merciful God. In their pain and in their struggle, the Israelite people cried out to the Lord, verse 15, and what did the Lord do? Ignore the pleading of this fickle, wicked people? No. He gave them a deliverer. Without even a moment's pause, that's how great God's mercy is. Straight away. He decided to save them, and he made it happen. No putting them to the test. No waiting to see whether their repentance really was uh, worth worthy. He simply gave them a deliverer, just as they asked. And he does the same for us. He's done it once and for all in sending his son to die in our place as a punishment for our sins so that we could be made alive alive. He chose us, he loved us, he saved us when we had shown him nothing but hatred. And he goes on doing it every day through ordinary means and extraordinary. Christ's atoning work was done on the cross, it's complete. But his interceding work begins anew with each new day. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, he was raised to life is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Romans 8, verse 34. He delivers us from evil, as we just prayed. In the Lord's Prayer, his mercies are new every morning. Lamentations, chapter 3. God's posture is that of the sprinter, poised, ready to run to our aid as soon as the starting gun is fired. He has saved us by his mercy. He is saving us by his mercy. He will save us by, our, by his mercy. We have a merciful God. So we've seen a sinful people and a merciful God. Let's move on now to uh, to the bulk of the story, where we'll see an impotent enemy an impotent enemy from verses 16 through to verse 25 and the story really really gets going in verse 16 uh, God raises up Ehud a left-handed man the son of Gera, the Benjamite now I don't know how you tend to introduce yourself you probably do use your family name the equivalent of Gera the Benjamite probably don't tell people whether you're right-handed or left-handed But we'll uh, see why that's in there later on. Uh, Ehud is sent, verse 15, with a tribute to King Eglon. Uh, But before he goes, verse 16, he made a double-edged sword, about a cubit long, which he strapped to his right thigh under his clothing. So he arms himself before he goes to King Eglon, making a 40-centimeter-ish dagger and hiding it under his clothes. Now, that would make it through security at Gatwick, we may think. But um, Ehud makes a cunning calculation. Um, They'll only look for a concealed weapon, he thinks, in the uh, traditional left-hand trouser leg, where a right-handed person would most likely want to hide it. We shall see if that plan comes off. Verse 17, off he goes. Uh, He presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, who, another interesting detail alert, was a very fat man. Verse 18, Ehud and his men depart, having given the gift. But verse 19, he sends the rest of the group on their way home, and Ehud does an about turn and heads back to Eglon. Uh, Verse 19, he gets there, and he announces, Your majesty, I have a secret message for you. Interesting, Eglon thinks. Maybe the announcement of some more gifts from Israel, maybe a top-secret update on one of his territories. Uh, Keen to hear this secret message, Eglon, fatal error, demisses his servants and gives Ehud a one-on-one audience with the king. Yes. Ehud approaches the king, verse 20, drops a tantalizing hint of the divine. I have a message from God for you. The uh, not insubstantially sized king, remember, lumbers out of his chair And quick as a flash, verse 21, Ehud reached with his left hand, drew the sword from his right thigh, and plunged it into the king's belly. The camera zooms right in, the shot slows right down. Even the handle sank in after the blade, and, awkward, his bowels discharged. Ehud did not pull the sword out, and the fat closed in over it. You can see some grimaces. And then the uh, picture of calm, verse 23, Ehud went to the porch, shut the doors of the upper room behind him and locked them, strolling out without so much as a drop of blood on his cloak, having left the sword in Ehud's belly. But the comedy isn't over. For verse 24, after he had gone, the servants came and found the door of the upper room locked. Like any good throne room, it was en suite. So um, they said he must be relieving himself in the inner room of the palace. Clearly it was that time in the day. The second hand ticked round the clock, then the minute hand, then the hour hand, but no sign of the king. Feet are starting to twitch. Eye contact is being avoided. Is that a funny smell? Verse 25, they waited to the point of embarrassment. But when he did not open the doors of the room, they took a key and unlocked them. And there they saw their Lord fallen to the floor, dead and covered in his own excrement. Mighty Eglon, king of the Moabites, leader of the Ammonites and the Amalekites, verse 13, conqueror of the nations, tormentor of Israel for 18 years, verse 14, is found dead and covered in the contents of his own bowels. I'd love to have seen what the Daily Mail would have made of that the next day. But of course it, it raises a question. It's funny, but was it right? Was had following God's will in this seemingly bloodthirsty act of treachery? Well, there's much that could be said. And it's a question, I warn you now, that's going to rear its head many times as we read through Judges. Let me give you just two or three minutes on it now. First, the narrator holds his tongue. We're given neither a speech from God nor an evaluative comment from the writer about this episode. So really, we, we simply we don't know what God thought of Ehud's assassination method. We're not told. So we have to hold any conclusions we make tentatively and be aware of our our own biases. Um, Second, God raised Ehud up to deliver God's people from God's enemy. Defeating an, an entirely evil, as Phil taught us last week, people required defeating their also entirely evil king. Whether Ehud went about it in the best way, Big picture, he was doing what God had raised him up to do. God's will was for this wicked king to be removed. And that's what Ehud did. And we're, we're fooling ourselves if we think that Eglon is some sort of innocent, you know would have turned to God if only he knew character. He deserves our sympathy. Like the Pharaoh of the Exodus. Like Nebuchadnezzar. Like other world leaders in the news today. He had spent his entire career, his life, rebelling wholeheartedly against God and persecuting God's people. It was a gory way to go, but Eglon got what he deserved. So the narrator holds his tongue. Big picture, Ehud was doing what God had sent him to do, delivering God's people. A third thing, uh, God seemed strangely silent in this account. Uh, verse 15, God is mentioned. We're told that he gave the people Ehud as their deliverer. But when do we next see God's name? Skim through. Not until verse 28. God doesn't get a mention in this assassination episode. So t- tentatively, though we have to say it, we can suggest that God probably didn't tell Ehud, to remove Eglon, like this. This little piece of daring deception was probably of Ehud's creation. The end justifies the means, I imagine. Probably a more open battle, like we see in other parts of the Old Testament, Exodus 17, Joshua 8, 1 Kings 22. That would probably have been a more honourable way for Ehud to deliver God's people. But here we are. This is how he did it. Uh, And God doesn't seem to um, call this ethical question either way and doesn't seem to consider this ethical question the, the, the biggest point in the passage. So let's not lose what God does seem to want us to see, and that is that God's enemies are impotent. Eglon is resoundingly and definitively humiliated in this episode. He doesn't even get named. After verse 19, He's like a fattened calf going to the slaughter, one commentator puts it. Where Ehud is capable and clever and ends up escaping, Eglon is impotent and foolish and ends up dead. Here lies the mighty enemy of God in his own you-know-what. And I think the writer is inviting us to see that this isn't just a description of this one enemy of God's, this Eglon, this ancient king of Moab. Rather, it is a description of all God's enemies. Though they may be oh so powerful now, those who set themselves up against God will one day be made a spectacle of for all the wrong reasons. And I don't know about you, but I find that immensely reassuring and comforting. As we consider those we uh, might deem to be God's enemies today, Satan, of course, as evil spiritual forces, evil political powers, as we're seeing right now in Ukraine, false gods of Islam and Hinduism, secular powers that rule and control us, God-hating voices in public, And in our personal lives, in our society, in our city, in our workplaces, in these streets, setting themselves up against God and against us. And we long that they will repent. We know that God does not want anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. 2 Peter 3 verse 9. So we pray, we speak, we hope, and we weep, as Jesus did over Jerusalem. And yet we take comfort too. We take comfort too. that God's enemies will not ultimately win. They will not defeat us. They will not defeat him. The battle has already been won. Satan and his friends fight on in denial. And God's enemies, if they continue in their rebellion, will be humiliated. Having disarmed the powers and authorities, Jesus made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross, Paul writes in Colossians. God's enemies will be humiliated, and that is good news. So we've seen a sinful people, a merciful God, and an impotent enemy. And then the story comes together in a decisive deliverance. In verses 26 to 30, a decisive deliverance. Ehud hotfuts back to Israel after the events of verse 16 to 25. It seems that news spreads quickly, and he seems to be more publicly recognized as their leader now. And verse 27... He blew a trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim and the Israelites went down with him from the hills with him leading them. Follow me, he ordered, verse 27, for the Lord has given Moab your enemy into your hands. They follow his lead, battle commences and God gives them a decisive victory. At three ways in verse 29, the totality of that victory is emphasised. At first, at the huge number struck down about 10,000 Moabites. Second, the condition of the soldiers they defeated, all vigorous and strong. And third, the comprehensiveness of their success. Not one escaped. Where there may have been some ambiguity about Ehud's choice of method earlier, there is no doubt now. Ehud was the man God raised up to deliver his people from the wicked Moabites, And that's exactly what God has done through Ehud, leading to a reversal of what we saw back in 14. In verse 14, Israel were made subject to Eglon, king of Moab. And here at the end, Moab is made subject to Israel. And again, I think there's precious application for us here too. Because for us to, despite how unlikely, how uncertain it looks now, God's victory will be completed. Every single one of God's enemies will be defeated. There'll be no stray demons, secret sins, silent sufferings carrying on in heaven. Every single one of God's enemies will be defeated. Satan will be cast into the fiery lake in Revelation 20, and he will never raise his head again. And that gives us great confidence and great hope as we see evil rage around the world and as we admit how black our own hearts are. So, we've learned the ropes with Othniel. We've played a full game through with Ehud. We finish with a very short, sweet game with Shamgar in verse 31. After Ehud came Shamgar, son of Anath, who struck down 600 Philistines with an ox goad, he too saved Israel. You're at your friend's house, you've played through the game a couple of times, you're getting the hang of it, and then uh, someone new turns up, they don't look like they're going to be any good. You play one more game and they trance you in a few minutes and then leave. It's a bit like Shamgar's story, I think. Um, we know very little about him. Um, he gets this verse. He gets a mention in Deborah and Barak's song in chapter 5, verse 6. We know his name. We know his family, Anath. We know that he saved Israel, that he saved them from the Philistines, that he saved them with an ox And interestingly, it's, it's pretty likely, from the little we know, that he wasn't even an Israelite. Uh, his name suggests he was probably a Hurrian. Uh, and the Anath is probably the Egyptian goddess, Anath. We hardly know who he is. We hardly know what he did and how. We've got no idea how he emerged as a champion for Israel. But we do know that God saved Israel through him. Our God is resourceful. He saves his people through surprising people and in surprising ways. But save them he will. And so we can give thanks for this almost entirely unknown saviour. And so we see in these first three judges, the game begin to be played out and going slightly differently each time. And yet what do we see that's the same in each each game? We see a sovereign God certainly save his people in the most surprising ways. We see a sovereign God certainly save his people, but in the most surprising ways. And isn't that the gospel story? what saviour could have been more unexpected than a member of the triune God himself, the last person anyone would have expected to come and sort out our mess, and that the eternal Son of God then came not only to save his people, but to be one of the poorest, the lowliest, the least influential among them, born to a carpenter, his wife and then what more surprising way could God choose to save his people no rags to riches story not carpenter's son made good and takes over as ruler and king no he's humiliatingly killed off by the imperial power of his day like a common criminal and what more surprising people could God choose to do that for than those who were his enemies, us. And does he not continue to work in the most surprising of ways in our lives? We love to, uh, to, to put him in a box, to plan out what he should do for him. Yet he works in surprising and mysterious ways through the last people we would have expected, through great tragedy and hardship, in his own timing, with his own sense of humor. And will he not certainly save us? For our Saviour sits on the throne, ruling and reigning now and waiting for the appointed time when he will come back to get us and make all things right and humiliate his impotent enemies once and for all. And so we can be confident in him. We can trust him. And we can rejoice as we follow him Let's pause for a few moments and then I'll lead us in a prayer. Father, we thank you for what we see in these three accounts of you. A sovereign God, certainly saving your people, but in the most surprising of ways. And we thank you that we see that story even more clearly in the story of your salvation of us through Jesus. And for so many of us, we are oh so familiar with that story. Help us to feel the surprise of it and to take confidence. That you have saved us, you are saving us, and you will save us, though you will not do it in the ways that we might think. Amen. Jill is going to come and lead us now in a further time of prayer.